my spiritual growth comes from pain. My entire life right now is organized around having spiritual growth come from something other than tragedy and hardship. <laughs> and so like, for me, that looks like service work. It looks like step work. It looks like being of service to people in every possible context in my life, professionally, inside AA, outside of AA, all that. I heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Sam, Christmas is coming, I heard. You know, it's uh, the 25th is a Sunday this year. Which is what I need to keep in the front of my mind. Here comes Sunday, period. Sunday, not here comes a world full of expectations and obligations that all have to be met for me to be happy and sober. Well, actually, you know, those are coming all, all before Sunday as well. So maybe you <laughs> should pay more attention to the days leading up to it also, because, you know, we don't do end-of-year holiday celebrations just on one day. No, there's many days in the holidays that I have to not oh, not have expectations. I mean, that that's what gets me in trouble. And I've been sober for a few decades, and a couple of years ago, things weren't going the way I wanted them to in the first couple of hours with uh, my family. And I was trying to make everybody do what I wanted. And I got so mad, I ruined the whole day. For me, yeah. I, I didn't ruin it for everyone else. It was because of expectations and trying to get things to happen. And I forgot the fundamental rule of recovery as I've got no control over the world. <laughs> yeah. So Thanksgiving this year was just a little rough for me. And mm -hmm. I don't know really why I've talked with, uh, with my husband about it. It was just the two of us in the house this year when everything is shut down in, in the U S uh -huh. and there's just nowhere to go or do anything that's with people, unless you're invited somewhere to someone's home or something. And so I just kind of got in my head because I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And it was just another day and it was just the two of us. And so he cooked all day and I went upstairs and kind of stayed away because I knew that, you know, I just wasn't in a good headspace to be cheerful around him. Mm -hmm. That worked okay. I mean, we we were fine and, and we enjoyed the evening and all that. But I, it was another one of those situations of what do I do with myself? And that happened to me in early recovery. And this yes. is the first time it's happened to me in a long, long time. And it caught me off guard. So we're making plans for what we're going to do on Christmas Day so that we've got an idea rather than we've got to come up with something on the fly. Uh, that's really interesting. I was at a meeting this past week and someone brought up her sponsor had said, Okay, well, you made plans when you were drinking about what you were going to do, didn't you? And she said, yes. And the sponsor said, you need to make plans what you're going to do with yourself on the holidays. And I thought that was really interesting. And there you go. That's exactly it. I mean, early sobriety, when you gave me a three-day weekend, it threw me for a loop. I didn't know what to do with me. So what did I do? I went to meetings. Went to meetings. Maybe that's what I'll do this time, too. It's being connected. I need to go to a meeting on the day on Christmas Eve for me, and I need to go to a meeting on Christmas Day if I need to. Now, I probably won't, so I'm going to go to a couple of extra ones the day before, and I'll go afterwards. 
There you go. You know, some other things you might do, you might listen to some of the Grapevine audio project recordings. You can just search for them on YouTube, AA Grapevine. That is really cool. I heard about this. In fact, I've already recorded one. Of course you have. <laughs> I haven't done one yet. Eh, maybe we'll see. You know, AA Grapevine is collecting up to seven minute long stories from the fellowship in the form of audio recordings. Share what you would in a meeting or pick a topic of your own choosing from making amends to working a particular step. If your audio story is accepted by the AA Grapevine editorial staff, Grapevine will publish it as a YouTube playlist or on another media platform. Grapevine does not collect recordings from speakers at AA meetings. To record your share, go to your favorite search engine and type in AA Grapevine Audio Project. You'll find a phone number to record it as a voicemail, or you can email your own recording. You can also listen there or search AA Grapevine on YouTube. You know, it helps me in times of like holidays or when I can't get to a meeting to listen to a podcast or AA Grapevine on YouTube. And now we're going to meet Casey M. from the North Country, Victoria, oh. British Columbia. That's in Canada, y'all. <laughs> Grapevine does not accept donations, but you can offer your support by making a purchase at store.aagrapevine.org or by the Carry the Message gift certificates to sponsor Grapevine subscriptions for alcoholics in need. That's store.aagrapevine.org. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Casey. I'm an alcoholic. As mentioned, uh, I'm in Victoria, British Columbia. In Canada, we consider this to be the southernmost part of the country, but I do understand that it is technically above. <laughs> well, actually, funnily, fun fact, Victoria is not above the 49th parallel, the line that divides the bulk of Canada. Victoria is one of the two places in Canada that actually dips below that dividing line between the two countries. So we're actually um, pretty close to uh, just north of Seattle from a longitude, no, latitude. I can't uh -huh. remember, whichever one that is. Um, <laughs> is it cold? But, <laughs> uh, it's about the same, about the same uh, weather as, as Northern Washington. So mm -hmm. yes. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so I'm uh, my home group here in Victoria is Generation Next. Um, my sobriety date is June 1st, uh, 2009. It's been a minute. <laughs> I have a hard time with dates. Me too. I'm really incredibly active in AA and, and very grateful for that opportunity, right? So I, I have a sponsor who has a sponsor. I, I sponsor guys whenever possible. I sit on the intergroup steering committee here in Victoria. Um, you know, take a handful of service positions at my home group and some other groups whenever I can. And I will say that I'd say like above all else, um, in terms of long-term sobriety, the thing that has been the, the single most deciding factor in that has been service for sure. Casey, how has dealing with the holidays changed for you from when you first got sober in 2009, the first year or couple of years and now? <laughs> Well, I mean, if you're going to compare 2009 or 2008 to now, the contrast is quite stark. I like to say it took me about four years to do the first step. So I, I did, I went to a five treatment centers in the first four years that I was trying to get sober. So I spent a couple Christmases in treatment in that time frame, which um, it was hard at the time, but not really hard compared to the other things that were going on in my life. I'd say that now with some time under my belt, I guess this is more like a, on a personal level, but 
My family dynamic has has started to shift and change probably in like the last five years of my own sobriety. So my parents separated when I was 12 years old. And so we've had like a split family for a long time, but for many years, we all still got together. What's shifted for me has been that our families have all kind of grown independently of one another now, right? So my father has a has a wife that isn't necessarily as involved in our family. My brother has another partner and, and a couple new kids. I'm married now. My mom lives over in Vancouver. And I think what's changed for me the most is that I've had to um, recognize where I was having unreal expectations around my own family dynamic that are just no longer represented in the reality of the world that I live in right now, right? So Mm. we all see each other on Christmas, or most of us see each other on Christmas, but Mm -hmm. the kind of show up at one family member's house and stay there all day and eat and open presents and, you know, spend all of this time together in what was my family unit when I was a child even though we managed to carry that forward for quite a long time when it was no longer like technically a family unit that has just really started to spread. I struggled with that for the first couple of years that I really saw it happening. I pushed pretty hard, not necessarily on other family members, but internally I I pushed myself pretty hard to have the same or the experience that I thought I remembered from childhood and from earlier in my life with these people. And The reality of the situation is now just that like, we don't spend that much time together. And this, this particular thing doesn't really work with the way that we've all included new and various people in our own families. So that was a pretty long winded answer. (laughs) No, because that's what I was talking about with expectations of the way things need to be to let go of that. It's as you said, an internal (laughs) battle. Exactly. And when, when I find myself in emotionally challenging times in my life, (laughs) (laughs) I often need to circle back to what I believe is the core of the serenity prayer and the core of what has given me some amount of success and happiness in life so far, which is one way for me to look at the world is that the world can be divided into two parts. And one part of it is stuff that I have influence over. And the other part of it is stuff that God has influence over, right? And there's a line that separates those two things. What I find is that when I'm disturbed, when I'm upset, when I'm resentful, when I'm having when I'm having a rough time and usually behaving like kind of an asshole because of it, what I find is that I'm almost always trying to influence things on the wrong side of that line, you know? So like the world is broken up into what I can control and what, what God controls. And I will spend large portions of my life trying to influence things that are on the far side of the line that are really only in God's hands. Mm. You know, the God of my understanding will handle the stuff that's on the far side of that line. But the converse part of that is that the God of my personal understanding won't actually do shit for me on my side of that line either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that classic scenario where when I when I find myself having a really rough time, it's almost always because I'm trying to do stuff on the wrong on the God side of the line. And that means that I'm burning all kinds of emotional and mental energy on that stuff that I have no control over and no ability to influence. And it also almost always means that I'm neglecting what's happening on my side of that line. And since God isn't going to step over to my side while I'm trying to mess with theirs, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, that stuff just gets neglected. And so to, to like bring that back to this question about family dynamics and expectations, you know, I, I, I realized for a couple of years there, I was really trying to influence things that were outside of my area of influence. And because of that, I wasn't doing the things that I could do to create a wonderful, loving, positive, connected family experience within my own family, and also like a new kind of experience that worked for everybody else involved, because I was just trying to push for, frankly, like stuff that I could not control. 
And L says that uh, the main difference between God and me is that God doesn't believe he's me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. You know, one of the things that shows up for me is how can I be of service is one of the best ways for me to get out of me. This was several years ago. My husband's brother had died. You know, I don't have a whole lot of interaction with his family. Haven't been around them all that often. I was feeling very just uncomfortable and in the way and, you know, all that. I went upstairs to our room and I just prayed for how can I be of service? And it's crazy. I love how this happens. But within 30 minutes of that, me going downstairs and getting back in with everything that was going on, they needed help that I was particularly adept at doing. And that was some computer stuff. I had something to do to be productive and useful and helpful. It helped them and it helped me. Absolutely. Right. And and I think family dynamics are such an interesting place to practice that kind of approach because, you know, my own family, they are people who are wonderful, intelligent, beautiful, like remarkable people. They are also people who have a lot going on in their lives. My brother has a couple new kids. My mom is my mom, <laughs> you know, like there are, <laughs> okay. there are like really incredible people who, who struggle not perpetually, but like, you know, are in periods in their life when like they have challenges. And so it's, if I'm actually willing to look, it's quite easy for me to find opportunities to insert myself in a service capacity into their lives. What's funny though, sometimes, you know, around these times of the holidays in particular, because they don't necessarily behave in the way that in the, like the, the picture that I've painted in my mind of our childhood, which is obviously wildly inaccurate because it's a memory, <laughs> but like this, this fantasy that I've made up about like how this should go, the resentment born from those expectations will get in the way of me looking to, for opportunities to be of service to them. You know, when you say like prayer is a great solution for that, right? And I will also say that like, I've gotten to a point in my own sobriety where I get really, really careful about prayer. Because, you know, there's this great saying, right? That like, you know, I never pray for spiritual growth because the cost is too high. (laughs) (laughs) Never pray for patience. (laughs) And like, like, you know, right now, you know, when I, when I'm struggling with a defect of character, which comes up with my family, like I'm human, but when I'm really struggling with one, I remember that if I pray to have that defect of character relieved on a particular day, I'm not gifted that by Santa. What I'm given by the God of my understanding is an opportunity to either act on that defect of character or not that day. When I'm really in the thick of it and wrapped around the axle about something emotionally, I only pray for relief from that if I am feeling really courageous. <laughs> <laughs> so be careful what you pray for. <laughs> so in early recovery, were you around alcohol when holidays would come around? Did Yeah, absolutely. I was raised by hippies in the woods of British Columbia, right? Like it's um, drugs and alcohol were, they weren't necessarily a part of my childhood, but they were a part of the culture that I grew up in. What I find interesting about that is that neither of my parents are alcoholic, nor is my brother. Around the holidays, it's like conviviality and mimosas and like that kind of very, the kind of drinking that I always aspired to. Yes. Yeah. I can never, I can never control and enjoy my drinking simultaneously, like not from a pretty young age. You know, when I watch the way my parents drink, it reminds me that I am bodily and mentally different than my fellows. Um, because my dad has two beers every day at five o'clock. 
he stops whatever he's doing that day. He has two beers and then he eats dinner and he, and he won't drink a beer with dinner. It's like some weird arbitrary line he has. You know, you can see him as he starts to drink that second beer, if it comes a little too closely on the tail of the first one. I mean, we all know the, the what I'm talking about, right? It's that feeling of starting to catch a buzz. Mm-hmm. His knee-jerk reaction to that physiological experience is like, whoa, pump the brakes. That is not normal. Right? You know, it reminds me that, you know, on top of the insanity that my brain will at some point tell me that it's safe to take a first drink. On top of that is this idea that like I respond differently. My neurological reaction to that experience is the exact opposite, right? He wants to like stop because he doesn't want to get too buzzed. I want to like, you know, forge a bunch of checks and then like, you know, sit in the dark watching reruns of Law and Order while I drink vodka from the bottle. Like those are, <laughs> those are like the, the difference, like the, the 180 response. Yeah. Well, you know, I talked to my brother about alcoholism. I described, you know how when you have a second beer, everything begins to light up and everything comes into focus and you get all this energy? And he screwed up his face and said, no, when I have the second beer, everything goes out of focus and gets wobbly. And I realized that I'm having an entirely different experience than he is. Well, and it's so subjective, right? Because physiologically, you're having the same experience. It's just that, you know, some human beings hate that feeling. And for some of us, it's like, you know, there was this great, uh, this old timer where I sobered up, he used to say, having one drink is like getting naked to shake hands. And it's, (laughs) (laughs) oh my God, I love that. (laughs) Only an alcoholic could truly understand that statement. But the, I can tell you right now, like, you know, at 13 years sober, when thoughts of relapse cross my mind, you know, you're an alcoholic when you've been sober this long. And like, I had this the other day in a meeting where I was sitting there and listening to somebody tell a, a relapse story from that quite recently had come in and. And I immediately envisioned what it would look like for me to drink today. And I can tell you that it was not a Manhattan sitting at the bar. And it was not like a glass of champagne at my daughter's wedding or on Christmas. It was within a fraction of a second, my mind figured out where in my office I was going to hide a bottle of vodka. It's crazy to think that that I don't even like when I romanticize drinking, <laughs> that's what I romanticize, right? It's not even there is no narrative anymore about what it's going to look like. Oh. Man, Casey, I'm never going to declare that anyone is an alcoholic, but I am going to say that you might be. <laughs> oh man, I had I had a I had a, a guy, a counselor in my final, most recent treatment center, who pulled me aside one day because I used to own a breathalyzer when I was drinking, and he just said like, "That's a whole different story, right?" It was some ill ill guided attempt to try to like you know get family members to help me monitor myself. It was it was ridiculous. He pulled me aside one day and said, "Casey, if you ever have any question about whether you're an alcoholic, remember." non-alcoholic people don't own breathalyzers. (laughs) Well, I love that you had a breathalyzer because I can imagine all the ways that I would have used that to try to help me control it. Yes. Well, that was, that was definitely my idea. Right. But I was never somebody who could control it at all. I was one of those people that would always really struggling with money. I never really had enough money to drink the way that I wanted to. And so I had to kind of steal from family members and loved ones and, you know, get a job for a couple of weeks and get a paycheck and then show up drunk and get fired. It was like this kind of multi-year cycle of just scraping together whatever I could find to drink the way that I knew I needed to drink, which just still makes my stomach turn. It was so emotionally painful. But, you know, I was never the person who could, who could do that. I would buy a bottle of, 
of something <laughs> buy a bottle of vodka i bought cheap vodka that was always my drink <laughs> and i would like you know i'd like mark the side of the bottle for like where i was going to stop and it wasn't because i didn't want to drink more of that it was because i didn't have any money the next day to buy more and so i was like i gotta stop here so that i'm not like heartbroken the next day right yeah and, and i'd always wake up the next day and check the freezer and there'd be like a you know a half an inch left in the bottle a bottom of that bottle so which is just idea. a tease right Oh well, I guess like gosh. charitable me the night before was like, oh, he's going to want this. <laughs> Someone who's not an alcoholic never needs to control their drinking. Exactly. It's just they just don't need to do it. I had a similar experience with a bottle of Frejeunet where I said I was going to drink oh, it. Oh, that down sounds to... like really ritzy, Don. It is <laughs> champagne. And I drank it down to the top of the F. Of the mm. bottle of Frejeunet was the idea, but I missed it. And I went down below to the second line in the F. And I went at that point, well, I've already gone past it. So I went ahead oh. and finished it. And then I opened up another bottle and I drank it down to the top of the F and said, okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah. The rationalization of an alcoholic. Yeah. Talk about like lowering your standards to meet your situation. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I just what I hear there is the story of a, a man who didn't give up. I mean, you're just a, you're just a winner until you stop trying. <laughs> okay, so you had a hard time giving oh, up. Yeah. Big time. So the last time that you gave up, which is the real one, what was going on inside of you? What do you think was different maybe for somebody who's listening who can't seem to get a hold of this thing? I love that question. And because I, I really, really struggled in that. I mean, I struggled for a long time leading up to that because I'd been exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous already when I was still drunk in the rooms in AA. There were other people who'd come in on the same kind of schedule as me. And I'd stayed drunk, <laughs> but I, they'd stayed sober over those months or six month period or whatever it was that I was kind of bouncing in and out in the early days. And so I saw the light come on in their eyes. And there was on some conscious or unconscious level, it registered with me that there was something that worked in Alcoholics Anonymous. And mm -hmm. so even though I wasn't ready to do it, I kind of put it in my back pocket and was like, well, you know, once things get really bad, <laughs> because I was already jobless and homeless and, you know, <laughs> multiple treatment center alumni, like, a, you know, like, but like once things get really bad, I could go like give AA a real try. Right. And so I did finally in this like what is, I believe, the fourth or third treatment center or something. I did five in four years, which is like my personal best. I'm planning to keep that number. But in the, I, I, did, I finally went and did them, and I, I was really throwing myself into it. I had a sponsor that I really liked, and I, I worked up through step nine. Obviously, the spiritual experience that is offered, which is the relief from addiction and alcoholism in AA, comes after 12 steps, just to be super clear. So I didn't, I didn't get that far, but I was doing them and I drank again. You know, what happened was, um, although I was, I actually thoroughly, I genuinely believe doing the steps to the best of my ability in that process, I was being a horrible, dishonest piece of shit outside of that. I was cheating on a partner I had. I was, I don't think that I had the capacity for the level of dishonesty that was existing outside of that one specific relationship in my life. And so I drank again, but what that felt like to me was that I had finally played my final card that might work in terms of saving my life. And when I played that, so I'd finally tried AA, really tried AA and it hadn't worked. And so I got to this place, we call it the jumping off point in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to this point where I was sitting at a fork in the road and down one path was death. 
uh, it was quite clear that the way that I was drinking was fatal. And if I wasn't going to die, I was going to envy the dead, right? That's almost kind of a worst case scenario. Yeah. And then the other path was to stop completely. And at that point, I had finally, you know, I'd spent that whole four years trying to find some third thing. <laughs> I was either going to like, you know, I was either going to drink and figure out how to manage the consequences, or I was going to stop, but I was going to like, I was going to do it some way that, that I'd figured out, or there was always, you know, it was a whole four years of trying to find some third option from drink to an alcoholic death or stop with the help of other people. <laughs> yes, I understand that. Only an alcoholic can reach that fork in the road where the options are accept help from people or die and sit at it for like a month and think. And what changed was that I became willing to take action without needing to understand what I was doing. It's that subtle shift where I had spent my entire life employing one really simple strategy for success, which is I will understand something first and then I will do it afterwards. There's many, many contexts in life where that is actually a very successful strategy. I understand it, I'll figure it out and then I'll do it. And what was happening is that in trying to get sober, it was killing me. Like thinking about having a spiritual experience was keeping me from having a spiritual experience. Wanting to understand how the steps worked was stopping me from doing the steps themselves. And so what changed was I was ground to a paste by life. I had absolutely no options. And I just became willing to take any action prescribed by frankly, almost anybody, except the other lunatics that were in there with me. I left them alone. <laughs> tell me what to do. I will do Like if you tell me to dust the radiator in this room twice a day, that's stupid. I will 100% do that if you say that it has any influence on whether I'm going to stay sober. Mm -hmm. And that translated into the steps themselves. And so I was able to get out of my own way when it came to working the 12 steps the next time. And this is a personal belief that is not held by everybody. So please take it with a boulder of salt. But I believe that the step, the step doesn't happen when I meet with my sponsor. When I meet with my sponsor, we sit and we read, and my sponsor tells me to go do something afterwards, usually in the, in the week interval between meeting with my sponsor. And I believe that the step happens in that week when my sponsor tells me to take an action. And so it, it often looks like writing something down. It often looks like experimenting with prayer. Sometimes it looks like, you know, sitting with somebody and speaking about something. Sometimes it looks like finding somebody from my past and, and having a conversation with them. Like those things, I've, I believe that if a documentary film crew followed me around, they could see me do the steps. And that's what I needed was to understand what the concrete actions are associated with each of the 12 steps so that I could stop thinking about how they worked and I could just put one foot in front of the other and do them. And that's what saved my life. And it's what continues to save my life currently. I have access to a spiritual experience, like a continuous ongoing growth of a spiritual experience in my life. And it is dependent on me taking spiritual actions every day. That looks like service work. It looks like step work. It looks like being of service to people in every possible context in my life, professionally, inside AA, outside of AA, all that. Beautiful. AC, this has been great. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. Absolute pleasure on my side. Thank you both. Sam, we got a letter from J.H. in Tidewater, Virginia. Jay writes, love your show. Here's my question. Is that the Sam Frybush organ trio playing stomp and buck dance on your intro music? I discovered them several months ago on another podcast, and they've been my morning commute to work jam since. Anyway, thanks for doing what you do. Have a happy Thanksgiving and a wonderful holiday season. Jay, thanks so much for writing us. 
we have a winner. <laughs> I'm wait. I I didn't know we were running a contest. <laughs> I just like that sound effect. You are right, Jay, or very close. We do use stomp and buck dance, but the opening theme is actually Will It Go Round? Take three. All that and much of the incidental music is by the Sam Freibush organ trio featuring Charlie Hunter from their albums Volume 1 and Volume 2. They were released at the same time, so I think of them as a double album. They're all touring now with other bands, but I'm happy they came together long enough to record that album. Thanks for writing in, Jay. Grapevine is looking for your story submissions. AA in the military. Stories are due February 15th, 2023. Did you ever serve in the military sober? Were you ever stationed overseas or on a ship while trying to stay sober? What were AA meetings like in the military? What were some of the challenges? Did you find AA while serving? Share your story by February 15, 2023 via aagrapevine.org share. A $100 bill, a $20 bill, and a $1 bill are talking to each other in the cash drawer. The $1 bill said, Hey, where have you guys been? I haven't seen you in a while. The $100 bill said, Oh, I just got back from Ibiza. After spending time in Paris, before that I was shopping on Rodeo Drive and a snorting powder in an exclusive nightclub. The 20 answered, I've been hanging out at the casinos, went on a cruise and did the rounds of the ship, went to a couple of baseball games to the mall, that kind of stuff. How about you, $1? Well, you know, same old stuff. Meetings, meetings, meetings. (laughs) (laughs) It's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.